The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show, brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Fleetwood Grobla standing by, the outgoing President and Chief Executive at SASL. Uh, disappointing results out of SASL today. Global commodity prices, of course, have taken huge strain over uh, the last six months, and that's one of the factors that has um, hurt SASL's profitability. Uh, we'll talk to the new chief executive at Mimecast. Up until now, South Africans have been in the driving seat of Mimecast, a business founded. It doesn't exactly say where, certainly by South Africans. I'm not sure if they went to London and founded it there or founded Mimecast here and then exported it there. Um, there's feels like there's some obfuscation around the origin story. But certainly the founders are South African. And of course, you'll know Mimecast because it is the security on your Microsoft emails. Um, and yep, yeah, that's out of a South African brain or a bunch of South African brains. Uh, Toby Shepchek is in Barcelona this evening. He's driving lawnmowers and playing video games at the same time. Don't ask. Don't ask. Uh, it's yeah, just mad. Uh, and then the... Uh, d- uh, promise by the Gauteng government that it's going to pursue e-toll debts. Uh, Wayne Divinage is not convinced. Anna Stroud is a freelance writer, and so she read a book called Freelance Like a Boss by Shia Carsing. Um, and uh, we will see whether or not it has improved Anna Stroud's ability to freelance. Um, certainly freelancing is the original side hustle. And then, a fabulous tale for you this evening of a multi-generational South African business. I learned all about it on a webinar the other day and one of the participants a man called Jonathan Akert from KZN said well I'm the sixth um, generation of family members running this business the same business run by the same family for about 150 years. It's an astonishing tale of ups and downs and trials and tribulations considering that most businesses Pablo tells us 94% of businesses will never be sold this is one of those 94. It's never been sold. It's just been passed from generation to generation to generation. That's not Pablo's point, of course. Uh, but yes, Jonathan Akert this evening. How he makes money in the property sector tonight here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. You can call us. You can tweet us. You can WhatsApp us. You can give us a WhatsApp voice note on 072-702-1702. Interesting blog on the World Bank website today pointing out that it's high time that we stopped using the term developing world when referring to what we call the developing world what does it actually mean? The term third world, finally, I think, is getting out of the lexicon. Very few people refer to third world anymore. And so developing world has been seen as the, I suppose, the, the slightly better off cousin of third world. But the World Bank is saying that, you know, developing world is basically everything that's not North America, Europe, Japan and Australia. And typically it's 135 countries that are low or middle income. It's six and a half billion people, 84% of the world's population come from the developing world and the bloggers on the World Bank site are saying hold on a second but it's it's it doesn't align well with history um, considering particularly when you look at colonialism and how it prompted reversals of massive fortunes. There was a, a wonderful historian in the 1600s called William Dalrymple who pointed out that in 1600 Britain produced 1.8% of global GDP 
and India was producing 22.5% of global GDP at the time. It was the developed world and Britain was the developing world. They wouldn't have liked it being called developing at the time. Uh, but should we differentiate? And if we do differentiate, how do we differentiate? Are the differentiations useful in a world that is increasingly integrated? I wonder what you think. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 7.02. Well, a big drop in profits for Sassel. 34% down at the half year. Mostly, they say, to the weaker oil and petrochemical prices. And, of course, it costs a lot more to run a business than it did a year or two ago. Inflation affects absolutely everything. It is still the world's biggest producer of fuel and chemicals that come from coal and gas. And it is profitable just less profitable than previously. It's also cut its dividend from seven rand a share to two rand a share. Fleetwood Grobler is the president and chief executive at Sassel. Uh, I, I think it was in 2021 where you were contemplating a rights issue and then you cancelled at Fleetwood. Uh, you sold off assets instead and you raised about three and a half billion rand or 3.3 billion rand. And there was a great sense of investor relief, but that seems to have dissipated again since then. Is it all about commodity prices? Fleetwood Grobler, president and chief executive at Sassel. That's weird, because he is there. But he seems to be hiding in a nook or a cranny of our technology. Okay, well, the line dropped. And the monkey... I'm told um, by somebody who's angrily WhatsApp me, William Dalrymple is still alive. It's my fault. I, I apologize. I was watching the, the phone lines and that's why I wasn't concentrating. But William Dalrymple very much alive. Thank you. That would, is more useful because GDP as a concept, of course, in the 1600s didn't exist. So yes, William Dalrymple has uh, more recently than 1600 suggested that, uh, that um, of course, that uh, India's GDP was considerably larger than that of Great Britain. Fleetwood Frobler. He is the outgoing president and chief executive at Sassel, and the background noise sounds promising. Uh, 2021, you contemplated that rights issue. You cancelled the rights issue. You sold off assets instead. You raised 3.3 billion rand Fleetwood. And there was that huge relief at the time that uh, Sassel was putting the worst of Lake Charles behind it. And, you know, the only way was up. Unfortunately, it hasn't played out that way. In layman's terms, what's continued to go wrong for Sassel? Thank you, Bruce, and good evening, everyone. So um, I do want to, to give a, a bit of a, a context where we are today. So we posted results when I look at the year-on-year comparison of the period. Um, in terms of volumes, most of our business segments have improved or proved on uh, volume output. The, the big headwind in terms of uh, pricing, let me give some context on that. So mining export coal, whilst volumes increased 16%, um, pricing went down 59%. On our Chemicals Africa and USA and Eurasia business, volumes increased respectively 3%, 12%, and uh, reduced 4% in Eurasia. But the big headwind was the pricing. So we saw a, a 21% in Chemicals Africa, 28% in the US, and 23% in Eurasia. So these are not easy um, headwinds to to withstand, but not notwithstanding, I would say we have dug in increased volumes we've contained cost year on year in terms of the cost we seen a cost increase of five percent but when you normalize for inflation and normalize for currency exchange impacts we actually uh, came down one percent uh, better in the in the period so we are focusing on the things we can control and i think 
you know, the, the chemical cycle is at its worst point we've ever seen in in all the years that we've been in the chemicals market. So I do think things has to stabilize and improve from here. It is that thing of being completely out of control on the price that you get. You're like a farmer who grows a bag of millies or grows potatoes or whatever. You get what the market gives you. Yeah, the commodities are really in that vein. So you can't, you're not a price maker. You are taking the price that is set by the commodity markets. And so I do see some stabilization now. I do, I do hear that there's talk of, uh, uh, you know, sort of interest rate stabilization when we look and listen to the to the Fed and uh, European Central Banks. We, we know that when uh, interest rates start coming down, it stimulates economic activity. So then hopefully economic, um, you know, activity means commodity prices are also better in, um, in, in its trajectory and the demand is stimulated. So when people buy more stuff, that is, that's good for chemicals because commodities then is in better demand. We're also looking at the China engine that is uh, at the moment not ticking over. When the economic activity pick up there, that will also another sign of, of stimuli in terms of commodity uh, environment. Uh, you are not in the most popular industry in the world when we consider uh, environmental concerns. I was at COP27 um, late, uh, late last year in Dubai, of course, flown there on fossil fuels, admittedly. Um, but I, I wonder what you're doing in terms of what you have been able to do in an environment where much of your own infrastructure is old and dated, where some of the technologies have got to be refreshed and you've got to constantly be trying to green up the business of Sassel. How are you looking 20, 30, 40 years ahead for a business like Sassel that is in a trade that is, will stop one day. I, you know, it was going to be sooner than later. Now it's later than sooner, but it will end eventually, won't it? Yeah, at the moment, uh, what is uh, clear is that the world needs more energy. The, the global population is growing. There is a need for more energy. It is about the just transition from fossil fuels to more sustainable uh, vectors of energy. And that's exactly where Sassel can play a role in terms of our move from a very fossil fuel, uh, you know, source base to a more sustainable input cost uh, based, which is uh, biogenic sources of carbon, biomass and the like, which we believe we are one of the few companies that can transition and reinvent itself beyond the 2030, 2040 period. And I think that makes us a very interesting play. We have to weather the storm right now. We have to decarbonize. We have to face the commodity cycle. We need to also do what is best in the interest of the South African economy to be able to transition with the South African energy situation to a better sustainable outcome. One of the criticisms of activists who, of course, disrupted and shut down your AGM last year was despite promises year after year after year that emissions were being reduced, Sassel was constantly missing targets. I remember Tracy Davies, Just Share, incredibly critical of the under-delivery on promises that Sassel makes. How would you respond to criticisms of Sassel's moving targets, if you like, in terms of meeting environmental concerns? So I do think the NGOs has got their role to play. And of course, they'll play an angle that is totally, um, as we have seen, not a true reflection of what we're actually doing. So just today, we have announced that as part of our renewable energy procurement program, 
we have got 498 megawatt of uh, renewable energy that is now financially closed or that is in construction with another 260 megawatt that we hope to announce once they've got grid access. So that will put us well ahead of our 600 megawatt procurement program to over 750 megawatts. So this is this is the fact that we are busy no, doing fair, work. Fair enough, but that's a survival mechanism in South Africa where if you don't do it, you will be out of business simply because there is no electricity to drive your your, your plants. Uh, are they talking about the output? They're, they're talking about the pollution effect of the, of, of the fuels and the chemicals that you produce. And that is exactly the point. We have been reducing our fossil fuel uh, greenhouse gas emissions since 2004 when we converted our Susselberg operations from a coal input to a gas input, which was a drastic um, you know, reduction, but they choose to ignore those type of delivery. We are committed to reduce our greenhouse gas by 30% by 2030, and we're making uh, very good progress. It is back-end loaded, but that's the nature of the of the um, industry. You can't uh, implement a project within a year and and do the yeah. the instruction, um, the, the design, the development, and construction within such periods. Although it's what they expect is not reasonable and is not feasible. So I think we need this to the coin here. There's the reality of decarbonisation through um, capital projects that time to invest in the renewables that takes time to invest in. And so the NGOs want to do it in a day, but that's not possible. Well, it is possible, but then everything stops and people die. I mean, that, that's the consequence of, of, of a dead stop when it comes to, to fossil fuels. You're stepping aside soon as chief executive. I think uh, your your successor uh, takes over in the next week or two, or no, in April, in April, um, your successor takes over, Mr. Baloy takes over from you. Do you feel like you're giving him a bit of a hospital pass? Is the business in better shape than when you inherited it? I think our decarbonization plans are very clearly uh, defined and we are busy executing on that. Um, uh, Simon Balloy has been part and parcel of our group executive and and part of the strategy that we as the board have been developing and endorsed. So he's stepping into a, a, a work in progress that we are busy delivering on. So I do believe that the Sassel that we found I found in 2019 and where we are today with all the programs that we've been working on is much more resilient okay. than what I found in 19. I do think it's a work in progress and I do think there's a lot of work that we have to deliver on. But that's the nature of the complexity of this business that we yeah. run in South Africa. Uh, I've just seen comments from Christine Lagarde this evening at the European Central Bank and is still very determined to target 2% inflation in the European Union sustainably. Um, and she's pointing toward the fact that, you know, growth is slowing in certainly European markets. There are indications it could pick up later in the year. But the global environment is not that supportive either, is it? Yeah, and I think that is what I mentioned earlier, is that the, the signs like Lagarde now mentioning inflation coming down, if the interests are moder- interest rate is, is starting to moderate, that is, that's good science because that will st- stimulate economic activity and uh, GDP, global GDP is what we need to get going in terms of a commodity cycle. So, um, so for us, we are well positioned to reap the uptick when that does happen to create more means 
to implement our very ambitious uh, decarbonization targets that we've set. And I believe that will bring everything back in balance again. Fleetwood Grobler, thank you. The president, the outgoing president and chief executive at Sassol this evening. Sassol share price falling a further 3% today to 142 and following those results. The Money Show. The Markets. To Peter Brook we go. He's a portfolio manager at the old Mutual Investment Group. And just a little bit more on Christine Lagarde this evening, Peter Brook. The current disinflationary process expected to continue, but the governing council needs to be confident it will lead us sustainably to our 2% target. If we translate that into English, it means that Christine Lagarde's not cutting interest rates until she can see uh, the number 2% very, very close in her windscreen. Christine Lagarde will cut interest rates. Um, uh, there's so much noise around central bankers talking and trying to massage markets. And what we're arguing about is, is it this month or is it next month or is it three months' time? But if you look at European growth, they're going to be cutting rates this year. So one of the interesting things is, do they actually cut rates ahead of the US? Um, because if you look at the growth in Europe, that's where the pressure is whereas the U.S. is still holding up quite well. Are you as optimistic as Fleetwood Frobler that we are close to the end of the rate cycle, that we will start getting the cuts, and as the cuts come, we will start getting the demand recovery that companies like Sassel and Anglos and Kumber and everybody else who's been reporting from the morgue of results presentations over the last two weeks? Um, everyone's sort of, is it, is it a good calculation or is it just a wishful thinking that things improve by the end of this year? It's already happening. Rates are being cut. So if you look out in emerging markets, Brazil's been cutting for some time. China did quite a big cut last week, um, and particularly targeting the mortgage rate in terms of their property market. So I am very comfortable that rates are going to fall. Um, as I say, I'm uncertain about the exact timing, but three months here, six months there, it's, it's, it doesn't change the fact that the theme is lower interest rates. Does that turn around Sassel? Well, that's a very different question. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, the chief executive, Fleetwood Krobler, putting a very brave face on a tough set of results. And when asked about sort of the alternatives in the future, one kind of thinks they're very much focused on the present in terms of a transition of the business to a, a, a mid-21st century business, which cannot possibly be in gas and coal anymore by then. Well, look, if you actually look at the numbers, you know, profits were down, earning before interest and tax were down 8.3 billion rand. Um, and I think the more concerning thing was actually their balance sheet, where net debt has grown to 100 billion rand. So the response, um, so that's higher work, net working capital, um, and the response is a big cut in the dividend. Yes. So I think that's good news for safety in terms of, yeah. like, does this keep as a going concern? But um, so I'm, I'm positive about that. But obviously for shareholders, you know, that's a 70% drop in your dividend. Absolutely. Seven rand down to two rand a share. Um, and I mean, understandable, everybody's been cutting dividends. And we, we saw Anglos doing it last week. And it's almost across the board, certainly in the resources sector, where you know, dividends are very, very hard to come by. Uh, do you anticipate an, uh, an, they managed to avert a capital raise in 2021 instead selling off assets? Might they have to raise some capital, you think? I think they can, I mean, 
the truth is they are profitable at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not expecting sort of pressure in the short term. The real concern is in the long term. You know, the cost of transitioning this business, and it, it's so critical to South Africa, who's going to bear that cost? Um, and I, I suspect that in a way, if you think about these mega businesses like this, it's almost going to become more like a parasitical. Um, government will be on the hook for funding this, but that's not a good environment for shareholders in the very long term. No, it's it's not. And uh, yeah, it's a, look, it's a tough, uh, tough sector to be invested in, uh, and in a world where so many of these big oil and gas companies have been reporting spectacular results for a long time, we kind of feel that uh, we we've seen Sassel sort of get stuck in the midst of its own sort of bad news flow. And um, there was an update from AECI this afternoon, from Altron late this afternoon as well. One just gets a, a very clear sense of fatigue coming out of South African companies. Certainly, the results that came out on, I think it was Wednesday last week, just told us that, you know, corporate South Africa was was truly being battered and battered hard. I think that's right. Um, so ACI, you know, headline earnings down between 7 and 16% higher finance costs. It wasn't a particularly good number. The share was only down 0.2%, but um, this is a business that struggled for quite a few years. Ultron actually, interestingly, um, was quite bullish. They were very excited about um, Netstar customers, over 1.7 million um, headline earnings per share. So once you strip away write-offs, we're actually up. And then one that you missed was Livestar. Um, They're kind of interesting just in terms of, it's a business that has really struggled over the last couple of years. Um, Their normalized earnings are down for the year, but they they are quite excited by a half one versus half two turnaround. So the second half of the year um, was was quite a big improvement. But you're right, if you read all of the results, we've got volumes under pressure, an inability to pass on um, inflation, higher costs, higher interest rates, lower profits. Um, and that, in a way, is sort of why interest rates must fall. From your lips, Peter Brook, from your lips. Peter Brook, who's a portfolio manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Thanks, Peter. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. So if you are trying to keep tabs of the very odd bites story, the chief executive, of course, uh, being asked to resign last week uh, amidst a share trading scandal, and nobody really knows what is going on. And there's a story on MoneyWeb today which encapsulates as best we can what is going on. And I'm not too sure where it comes from, but it's uh, published on the Money website. And it follows the sudden resignation of Neil Murphy, who resigned on Wednesday, tendered his resignation, um, which implies he was told, move, Jack, otherwise you move, otherwise you're in trouble. It would appear and this is where it gets really weird, that there were 119 transactions over 35 months. So between January 2021 and November 2023, 88 purchases, 31 sales. It was a very big sales and purchases. And then there were also some randomly small 10, 20, 30 share transactions as well, which just don't make sense. Um, and yeah, so we're not getting the clarity that we need as to what these trades were all about and why they were about and why they were not disclosed. But 119 trades over three years.
And it, it does raise questions because surely um, somebody noticed, a stockbroker noticed, uh, a company secretary noticed, somebody keeping an eye on the shareholders register would notice, surely, in the chief executive's volumes of trade. You get away with one or two, perhaps. But 100, over 100, that's very, very strange. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Well, Mimecast is a London-based cybersecurity and email management platform. It was founded by Neil Murray and Peter Bauer. Now, Wikipedia describes it like this, and I'm not too sure if they're desperately trying to avoid saying South Africa. Mimecast Limited is an American-British Josie domiciled company. I'm tired already. In cloud-based email management for Microsoft Exchange and Microsoft Office 365, including security, archiving, continuity services, etc., etc., etc. What it doesn't tell you there is that Mimecast has its roots in South Africa. Mark van Zadelhoff is the new chief executive at Mimecast. He is in South Africa visiting operations here. Um, I am going to be testing, Mark, your, your due diligence and your institutional knowledge, but did Neil Murray and Peter Bauer, two guys from South Africa, start the business of Mimecast in South Africa, or did they start it in the UK? Because I've never been able to quite put my finger on it. Uh, they started it here in South Africa, and oh. then uh, after a couple of years, moved it up to London, and then eventually uh, moved, uh, certainly Peter moved over to Boston, Massachusetts about 10 years ago, and uh, about uh, 70% of our business is coming out of North America nowadays and uh, and the rest out of UK, South Africa and rest of the world. I like to focus on companies that have started in South Africa and have exported their brilliance worldwide. And Mimecast, to my shame, is one that I've missed. I will correct my the error of my ways. I mean, but these are two um, two very bright young guys. Uh, uh, Peter Bauer sold a business to Idian. I remember Idian being listed on the JSE during the dot com bubble, um, and Neil was at a techie. And uh, they and also one of the founders is world famous for sending the world's ever first email attachment on the eleventh of March 1992. So these guys were at the, the very cutting edge. And was it a, a Microsoft tie-up right from the very start in the UK and the United States? Mark, what do you know about that? Well, I'm not a historian for the company quite yet. I'm in my fifth week here. But, uh, <laughs> catch up, catch up. Absolutely. Obviously, you, you, you know, it's as I say, you know, why do you rob a bank? That's where the money is. You know, why do you focus on securing uh, the collaboration and email uh, in a Microsoft environment, well, that's, you know, the largest market share uh, of email usage around the planet. So that certainly was a focus, but the company has broadened to uh, most any uh, uh, email platform and also into collaboration technologies more broadly and into kind of securing human risk. If you think about that person sitting behind the computer, the employee sitting behind the computer, how do we make that person less likely to do dumb or, or ignorant acts and how do we make the collaboration technologies like email less likely to lead them down the wrong track with hackers and insiders and the compliance issues uh, yeah and it's amazing that the the sort of the, the the roots of this business originate here you are born in the netherlands but you grew up in boston um how differently do you see the future of mimecast from perhaps what the founders did because i think the founders had it listed on the nasdaq for a bit and now it's in private equity hands uh, how do you see the future of the business yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I've known the founder, Peter Bauer, for about 10 years. So he and I are, are close and live close to each other uh, geographically in the Boston area. So uh, very honored to be able to continue the 21-year legacy uh, that he has in running and founding and running the company. 
Um, you know, as you said, the company was listed on the NASDAQ and then uh, Premier uh, European-based investors took them private about 18 months, almost two years ago. And as I said, I joined uh, five weeks ago. And I think both Peter and I, Peter still on the board of the company and Premira uh, obviously owning the company, see huge opportunity in expanding the company in two ways. One is, you know, beyond email and collaboration security to this area of human risk. And then also geographically, as I mentioned, we're uh, quite strong in uh, these three uh, parts of the world that I mentioned in the beginning, South Africa, UK and North America. But we're seeing rapid growth on the continental Europe uh, in Asia Pacific to name two other regions. And we're going to be doubling down on geo expansion in addition to product expansion. Because your own history is in cybersecurity. You started the IBM division around cybersecurity. It became a multi-billion dollar business. You recently built a business for, uh, for to scale and that was sold. The plan now for Mimecast in an AI-driven world becomes a bit more complicated, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been in the cybersecurity space for 25 years and seen it quite literally go from, you know, the proverbial kid in the basement in the in the 90s to, you know, intelligence agencies getting into it to now professional criminals and state-sponsored actors really leading the charge on the attacking side. So it's a fascinating business and, you know, building IBM security uh, acquiring 12 companies into that business, see, seeing that grow to a large business and uh, been at the startup phase. And uh, now Mindcast uh, is is at scale. We have 2,400 employees and 44,000 customers around the world. <laughs> There's always a new problem to solve in this space. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, this is a private equity place. So I'm, I'm assuming because of your track record, your job is to grow this business, spread it geographically, get the tech working, advance the technologies, bring more AI in. Uh, and we see it back on the NASDAQ at some point in the not too distant future. It, it seems, Bruce, you're well qualified to do my job. That's pretty much... <laughs> well, uh, no, I just guess. Work. And um, thank you for confirming. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I think there's many options. Uh, obviously, NASDAQ listing uh, uh, is is the most likely. And um, yeah, we're we're super excited about it. It's, um, as I said, with 44,000 customers and, you know, we've surveyed customers. We have a lot of permission and a lot of trust from our install base of customers. And so that really, for us, uh, you know, for the board and myself means that we should get on with that and expand and and really build uh, build out that portfolio. But it's it's already a very successful platform that I'm, I'm picking up here. Mark, thank you for chatting to us this evening. I appreciate you taking the time. I know that you're stretched and being pulled in different directions. The new chief executive at Mimecast, Mark van Zadelhoff, born in the Netherlands, lives in Boston, knows Peter Bauer, who moved to Boston. But yeah, the founders of, Mimecast, uh, of Mimecast, Neil Murray and Peter Bauer, um, another South African startup. And what's so interesting, to my mind, I'm going to test Toby Shapshak on this one in a moment, is that these are the guys at the epicenter of email security. And they were developing this at roughly the same time as that space cadet was developing um, internet security as well. Thought was the name of the company. And Mark Shuttleworth was the astronaut. Mark Shuttleworth and these guys, I think, probably building high-end security technologies in South Africa, roughly the, right, uh, roughly the same time. Toby will remember. We'll test him in a minute. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. 
Toby Shapshak on the line to us this evening, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be throwing you under the bus here, Toby, but the world of cybersecurity is astonishing in just how many companies have origins in South Africa that went global mid to late 90s, early 2000s, whether it was Mark Shuttleworth and Thought or whether it was the guys who founded Mimecast. It does feel like it all happened at roughly the same sort of time. It does, Bruce, but actually what Shuttleworth did was he created a way of, of creating what we now know as a digital certificate. Back in the day, I used to describe it as a passport for websites, uh, hopefully not a passport issued by Home Affairs, but a you know a passport issued by an authority that we can trust. And, and, and amazingly, what Shuttleworth did was he built up a business for, for the rest of the world because American companies were only focused on America. They, they hadn't kind of noticed that. You could get the internet in Europe or Africa or anywhere else. So very foresightful of 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 Onsa Mark, um, and uh, and he's done quite quite clever things subsequently. Ubuntu is a is a very powerful operating system. Uh, you know, most people, if you ask them, have you ever used Ubuntu, they they would say no, and they don't know what it means. But uh, it's used quite regularly, quite frequently by some of the big cloud service providers, Google amongst them. So so he's had quite a global. Uh, impact on the world, uh, mostly, mostly in you know creating non-home affairs possible. Uh, and the and the, and the Mimecast guys too. I mean, yeah, the the origins of Mimecast is also in South Africa. Yes, yeah, really, really impressive South African firms that have both gone global. Yeah, um, speaking of going global, Bruce Simon Barcelona you. this week for, yeah, the, for the big M- MWC. Yes, yes, the MWC Barcelona conference. I'm speaking the day listening to what 5.5G is going to do for us uh, while we have some very interesting use cases and propositions and, and what we're going to do. But of course, uh, most of us don't even know what 5.5G is. And like all good technology, if it works really well, we won't see it, we won't know it, we won't understand uh, the ins and outs of it. But um, uh, the highlight of my day, I have to say, Bruce, was playing Doom, which is a 20-year-old game. It was launched in nine. 19- and I played it, brace yourself, on a lawnmower, a Husqvarna, Husqvarna, sorry, Husqvarna, this, this Swedish company that uh, I suppose it's appropriate because they started in the 1600s uh, as the firearm manufacturer and now they make chainsaws and and uh, the first robotic lawnmower. But um, as a bit of a, a bit of a, a, I suppose, a prank or a punk, uh, the, the head of software development developed the game on one of these uh, robotic uh, lawnmowers, which, which I played with today. Uh, very amusing. I mean, the fascinating thing, just to give you a sense of how mm. technology has changed in the last 20 years, the robot has the kind of computing power that a, that a, a personal computer PC had uh, 20 years ago. You can play against... I played against the the, the, the head of, um, uh, of of software development there, whose name was Bjorn, um, and uh, and in, from from April to September, Huskavana, uh, and I learned out how to pronounce that because I went to the Telenor stand and I kept saying, "Where's Huskavana?" and they were like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, until I got the pronunciation right, um, and uh, um, and. Uh, and they're going to launch that for uh, for people to use um, for people to use thirty thousand uh, of the people who who use the have these lawnmowers will be able to play against each other. So 
quite a, I, I don't quite know a weird novelty, I have I've, to say. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to mow grass, but it is a, 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 a job that requires a bit of focus and a bit of attention if you want to keep nice straight lines. How on earth do you drive a lawnmower? I'm assuming this is a sit-on lawnmower. Yeah. How on earth do you do that? Not cut up the family pets, get no, the lawn no. mowed straight and win a, a game at the same time. And honestly, what is the point? Yes, I, I have to agree with you, Bruce. I'm I'm no good at mowing the lawn, and I'm I'm I don't want to be uh, too close to something with so many uh, sharp blades. But I have to say, because I've never reviewed a lawn mower before, and I've, I've certainly <laughs> never used a robotic lawn mower, but I did spend a lot of time looking at the underside of this lawn mower. Um, it could only in previous models, I'll have you know, could only do. 10 centimeters now they can do down uh, 10 millimeters now they could do it down to one millimeter oh my goodness, um and they can and you can you can uh, cut the edge of your lawn um bjorn showed me some interesting <laughs> stuff previously these husqvarna lawn mowers uh, had to have like a perimeter around your around your property which was a copper cable that you dug in so if it broke it wouldn't work now uh, i think the telenor uh, tie-up is that they use GPS and GPS data, so you can you can use an app and say, just mow the lawn here. I mean, I happened to notice while I was walking the dog in the park uh, over the weekend that one of the complexes on the side of the park had mowed the lawn of, had mowed the side of the park lawn, but only the strip in front of their complex, which just <laughs> seems completely absurd. I, I, um, I, I, thankfully, I saw that little can, tidbit just before I discovered can, you could do these with lawn mowers. Can we get Husqvarna's, who look, which look very beautiful, by the way, can we get Husqvarna's here? Or is this yes. just a little... We can, but they must yes, be very expensive. In, in, indeed, top, you top can, 10. yes. I, I, I wish I could tell you this off the top of my head, but... Um, I can tell you the price of smartphones, laptops, <laughs> digital cameras. I, I have no inside information on the cost of, uh, well, of robotic lawnmowers or, for that matter, air fryers. Well, the, 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 an entry-level Husqvarna, a drive system push, which has got no engine. It's one of those things that you've got yes. to like, push. It costs 2012 Rand 50. Um, the L44i without, well, you go. without battery and charge is 6,300. And then they get very zhuzhi. Um, and there's one that looks like a Flymo, um, which is the GX560, which goes for 12 grand. So, they, I mean, you know, you, if, depending on how close you need your lawn trimmed, and um, you can spend an awful lot of money. Toby Shapshak, who's been playing video games while on lawnmowers in Barcelona, which I don't know, has got that much grass in Barcelona. But anyway, Toby Shapshak on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106FM. So you can tell that I don't buy posh lawnmowers. So I wasn't aware of the fact that these Husqvarna um, Swedish lawnmowers are available in South Africa, but they most certainly are. And the top-end robotic one that you can get in South Africa, they say it will mow 5,000 square metres. I'm not sure where the grass grows, uh, where the grass goes when you've cut it. Does it just cut the grass and leave it and then you still got to go around and rake it all up or need some very, very hungry sheep or something. But um, then why would you have the lawnmower if you had hungry sheep? Because they could just do the job for you, but they'll pull out the roots. Um, or the cows pull out the roots. But anyway, uh, the Husqvarna, uh, 75,000 rand for a robotic lawnmower. My goodness gracious me. The Money Show, brought to you by APSA CIB, driving action-led insights that create impact when actioned with collaboration through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered 
FSP. Our book this evening um, is all about how to freelance like a boss. Uh, Anna Stroud is a freelance writer and a bit of a book nerd, she tells us. So she is going to be reviewing that book for us this evening. And then at half past seven, we've got the sixth generation um, family member running a family business in KZN, which means it goes about to about 1850 or thereabouts. Um, it's a property business. It's essentially in property management and in um, real estate management and of course in dealing in property um, but they've never they've not ever fallen into the trap of going large and trying to be in every town there are only about 20 franchisees available anywhere uh, franchises available in South Africa so Jonathan Akert um, Akert number six in the family business tonight on the money show half past seven how he makes money 702. Bruce is on the money show. I laughed out loud today when I saw a headline about how the Gauteng government still plans to collect e-toll debt from motorists. It's no laughing matter. I'm just laughing at the principle. Uh, Wayne Divinage is chief executive at uh, the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. Uh, the organization, of course, founded in the early days of e-tolls um, and fought a very successful campaign against e-tolls. I think it's still due to come to an end at the end of March, isn't it, Wayne? Yeah, well, that's what Panyaza Lasufi tells us, but we've heard these deadlines many times before, and uh, I think the proof is only going to be in the pudding once we see it actually happening. I don't know, Bruce. Uh, really, I am flabbergasted at these recent statements as well. It, it is confusing. Okay, I was under the impression that National Treasury had said probably 18 months or two years ago that this is mm. unworkable. It's just it's spending costs too much money to run and nobody's paying anyway. We may as well discontinue it. Uh, and then uh, case now National Treasury is saying, well, we're not quite ready to discontinue it. Uh, Panyazas is saying what we will discontinue. Oh, the Premier is saying we will mm. discontinue. Um, and, and the fact that they're still going to collect the debt, I was also under the impression that there was a realization that that was an unlikely and unfeasible goal. Very much so. You know, this is not anybody else's but Sanral's decision to make. And they've stopped the summonsing and the uh, enforcement process back in March 2019 uh, when they realized that they were just, uh, you know, chasing something that was just not going to happen. I think it was election time at the time. They got a tap on the shoulder from then uh, President Incumbent uh, um, Ramaphosa, to say, look, stop this war with our citizens, which it was. It was a litigious warfare strategy that Sanral had embarked on, and they were going nowhere. The, the compliance rates had dropped well below uh, 40%, 30%, and they needed 90% for the scheme to work. And I think last year in October, no, the year before, about 18 months ago in the midterm budget policy statement, uh, in Okorangwana did make that statement, look, we are now done with e-tolling as a financing mechanism for this freeway upgrade, and we're going to find the solution through which we had been proposing right from the get-go in 2010 uh, to fund it through National Treasury Collections, which, by the way, they had been doing for the last eight years anyway uh, due to the shortfall. And now we're here. And then Panyoza said, uh, yes, at that time, end of 2022, yeah, we're going to refund those who've paid. I mean, that was a shot out of the blue, uh, 7 billion rand or so. We said, well, that's going to be interesting. Then he tried to retract that. Now there's a new deadline, but what has slipped into this message from the uh, budget speech, well, not from the budget speech, but from the lockdown session, which a journalist asked the question, what are we going to do? Where's the ETOs? Nothing's mentioned in here. They indicate to him, no, we're still going to go and collect the debt from the motorists. Now, that's uncollectible debt. Most of it is prescribed. The economy cannot afford this. It's just never going to happen. 
So it just makes these waters muddier than ever before. Uh, and it, yeah, it's a, it creates unnecessary noise. It really does when, the, when mm. the messaging is all over the place. I mean, still, we owe money to the people who improved the roads and built the gantries oh, and, yes. and provided the equipment, all of that sort of stuff. It's not their fault that mm. we couldn't manage the system we asked them to put in. So we still, exactly. have, to pay, we, we still have to pay for it, even though um, it's not generating any money itself. Yeah, no, look, infrastructure upgrades of this nature doesn't fall out of the sky. We pay for it. You and I, somewhere along the line, we pay for it. And we've been saying to to Treasury uh, and Sanral right in the beginning, look, this is social infrastructure. It is stuff we use daily when we go to work and places of worship, school, everything else. And even the President's Committee in 2013 on the funding of SOEs recommended that a user-based principle is not applied in this type of infrastructure. Long-distance route and story. And uh, and I think they realized the penny dropped by 2022 that, look, this is not working now. They've tried everything. So we have to pay for it some way or another. And as I said, Treasury has been financing the GFIP bonds uh, shortfall to Treasury, which is how they've been financing all of Sanral's non-told roads since day dot, since, uh, since democracy. So, yeah, why they went and tried the scheme against all the indications that it was going to fail. But nonetheless, they've tried and have given up, and now they want to still go and collect the debt. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because we've got a gossamer thin budget. I mean, it's a, it's a budget that is incredibly vulnerable. It is mm. a budget that is based on some assumptions that will come true and many that won't. Um, and it is a budget that cuts from some departments and not others. And we haven't had a fuel levy increase, I think. This was the third consecutive year. Yeah. Whereas, you know, that was one of the funding mechanisms suggested earlier that everybody in the country, whether you lived in uh, Pofader or yeah. Polokwane or Pretoria, you would have paid the extra money in on fuel, which would have objected, you know, other people would have objected to. But we're not seeing the mm. revenue come from there either. And I'm just I'm worried that these everything is being funded on debt. And we, it's part of the, the billion rand a day interest payment that we have now is that, you know, government planning has been inadequate. Yeah, yeah, Bruce. Look, I mean, uh, you know, we've said all along that 10 cents on the fuel levy back in the day when the decision was made uh, would have financed this whole upgrade at the inflated prices, by the way, three times what they should have paid. Nonetheless, (laughs) they've increased that fuel levy by more than 10 cents since then in 2010 or 2008 when we made the suggestion. They've increased it by over three rand odd. Uh, in the number of increments. Now, we were surprised that the Enoch Gordon-Gwana did not increase the fuel levy for a third year in a row, but we've also said for many years that that strategy is going to have to come to an end some stage because you can't keep relying on, on fuel levies, especially as this move transition to non-fuel you know, electric cars. And I think he, the pennies dropped there that they can't keep relying on that. It's, it has a negative impact on the economy as a whole. So, you know, it's not surprising that he didn't increase it again uh, in one sense and surprising in another when you're very desperate for funds as they are. And, you know, 30, 40 cents increase in the fuel levy would have given them an extra couple of billion rand a year and we're desperate. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting. But the the issue and these decisions on e-tolls and the deadlines and the new decisions just don't make sense anymore. Wayne Divinage, thank you. Chief Executive at the Organisation Undoing Tax Abuse, Alta. Uh, Wayne Divanage, the founder, of course, of that organization, found it in response to the beginning of E-Tolls. And <laughs> uh, the saga rolls on and rolls on and rolls on. Astonishing, really, um, that we're still having these arguments. But we do like a long argument. We do like to draw the argument out. We do like to extend the fight, um, even when it's illogical to do so. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Action-led insights in Africa's non-bank financial institution sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. Business books. We'll get to Anna Stroud in just a moment. She's reviewing a book for us all about freelancing. If you missed it in the last hour, we had a fabulous discussion with a man called Mark van Zadelhoff, um, who's taking over as the chief executive of Mimecast. And in the deep recesses of my very foggy memory, I recall that Mimecast is somehow connected to South Africa. What Mark was able to confirm this evening is that the founders created it in South Africa and then later exported it worldwide. And it is I've just seen a Mimecast message in my emails now, a moment ago. Um, and it's one of those things that you don't really register because it's not, you know, pretty or interesting or, you know, but it's incredibly useful. Um, and a South African was the first person ever to send an email with an attachment. These are the bits of trivia and other valuable things that you hear here on The Money Show. But here is something that is valuable. It is a book all about freelancing. And I think everybody should freelance. Everyone should have a side hustle of some description. Anna Stroud is a freelance writer. She's also a bit of a nerd when it comes to books. Reviewing for us a book this evening by uh, called Freelance Like a Boss by Shia Carsing. And, and freelance, Anna, as you will, to which you will attest, is most certainly a thing, isn't it? I mean, lots and lots of people, probably more than ever, are freelancing in one way or another. Definitely, Bruce. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I think that, well, I don't think, I know that more people than ever are turning to freelancing and in some way or another trying to turn their, their side hustle into a career or trying to leave their nine to five and turn their passion or their hobby into into work, you know. Um, so what uh, Freelance Like a Boss by Shay Carsing is all about is teaching you very, very practical tips on how to make your passion a business. I'm curious as to how to make a passion a business because this is the original gig economy. Before the gig economy was the gig economy, it was the freelance economy. It is the same economy. We just now use more tech, <laughs> more tech to freelance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We use different words. Exactly. <laughs> Same thing. Same thing. So, I mean, how, how do you freelance like a boss? Because, in a, again, some people love the, the freedom that comes with freelancing, that ability to say, I'm going to take December and January off because I had a very good 10 months and I'm, I'm just going to recover and I'll be back. And I'll, I'll start drumming up new business in the middle of January, but I'll only really start working middle of February, whatever the case is. And some people are very comfortable with not having 12 regular equal-sized paychecks. Freelancing works for some people, not for everybody. Well, that's what that's a big part of the book is how to monetize your creativity because and what I I found the book so useful because when I started freelancing 7 odd years ago, I just thought that if I could just take this thing that I'm good at, which is writing and become better and better and better at writing, eventually everyone will want my writing. And that's not true. Um, You need to also have a sense for business. And this book, uh, there's a chapter on legal and tax, and you already want to roll your eyes and think, why do I need to know this? But but it's very important. And and she's, she's so amazing. She goes through the different business models 
um, how to pick a business name. She has a checklist for different things that you must put in a contract. I'm ashamed to say, and I hope no one's listening, I have never actually drawn up my own contract before until I read this book. I've always just, I suppose I've been a bit naive and just hoping that, you know, things will come. But, But you need a contract. You need to protect yourself. And so this book is for people who want to freelance and who want to be their own businesses. And it teaches you how to be a business and not just be busy. Because like you said, if you want to, if you, if you want to, you know, work 10 months out of the year, you're going to have to hustle to make money so that you can go relax in December. And this book, teaches you how to work smarter, not harder. Uh, it's so important that you need to understand this idea that when you are not delivering the work that you set out to do, um, and there's no goofing off at the office, there isn't time at the water cooler, there isn't time at the coffee station, there isn't not at all, uh, no. a half day on a Friday just because you feel like it and the boss is playing <laughs> golf. Um, you are the boss um, and, and, and you are you're working for the, the cruelest boss of all and that's yourself because uh, people who, who sort of go into business for themselves or go freelancing thinking, I have so much more free time. Uh, no, <laughs> that, that's not true. <laughs> have you, however, in your experience as a freelancer, and no details here because your business is your business, but have right. you had a commensurate increase in your rate and the amount of money you earn far higher than having the security of the job? Um, yes. I have been very lucky in having clients who see my value and who, who have given me increases because they they like my service and they want to retain me. Um, but that is also one of the one of the hints in the book is how to. She actually has a rates calculator on in her book. How to calculate how much you want to make in a month and how much you should charge, and then how to how by how much to increase your your hourly rate or your overall rate per month. In fact, she has this really cool quote, the supermarket doesn't ask if they can increase the price of peanut butter. If you don't raise your rates, you're getting poorer. And that to me was a good lesson to learn. But it's a really difficult thing if you feel vulnerable as a freelancer to go to the provider of the contract and say, uh, terribly sorry, my rate this year is going up by 7% or I'm doing considerably more for you now and I'm doing a higher grade of work that I was doing at the start and you'd be using me for copywriting rather than copy checking now, for example. Yes. So therefore, actually, my rate is going up 15% and you're still getting a very good deal because, and they go, no. It's a, it, it is a challenge, definitely, but, you know, your cell phone provider doesn't ask you, your, your rates just go up. The, the tr- <laughs> no one asks yeah. you. The tr- so it's all about making yourself a business. Absolutely. When you're a monopoly, you can do as you please. And I mean, they're not that many peanut butter producers. And if we all got our favorite peanut butter brand and we're not going to change it for anything. So you're captured by peanut butter. You're captured right. by your cell phone right. provider. You're captured by your bank to a great extent as well. Because there, you know, we have competition, but it's not that much competition. In the world of freelance, aren't is it, it feels to me there is a fair amount of desperation amongst some freelancers and there is a fair amount of cutthroat activity that happens in the world of some freelancing. I think so. I think you're right. And, you know, the more, I think COVID accelerated 
the need for freelancing. I think a lot of people either lost their work or started freelancing on the side to make more money, to pay the bond, to pay the bills. So there's definitely a lot of freelancers and it can be very cutthroat. And in the book, she she gives you practical tips on how to initiate that conversation. And again, it's all about relationship building and showing your value. And she also has a chapter on how to consciously uncouple from, <laughs> yeah, that is what she calls it, from a client that no longer, you know, Serves your purpose. Wants to pay you. Absolutely. Yes, serves your purpose. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so often I think these freelance relationships sort of morph into an, a part-time job and then suddenly it's a full-time job and you actually can't take on additional clients because your freelance gig has been almost subsumed by, oh, can you just come to this meeting? Could you just turn up there? But your contract doesn't say that you'll be paid for meetings. It says you'll be paid per word for the amount of work that you do or whatever the case is in, in the case of a writer, for example. But suddenly you're finding yourself in five hours of meetings a week because it's really important for the project and you you've, it feels churlish to say no but at the same time it is time that you're using that you could be going out and hustling for other work so that is where your contract comes in bruce and she shay i keep calling her she it's shay um she she has this great chapter on how to well section on everything you need to set out in your contract and one of those things is saying no to meetings. So saying, I will come to a meeting if it pertains to this and this and this, but regular work meetings, all of those things. Yeah, it's, it's all, if you have it in your contract that you initiate, you can go back to your contract and be gently forceful. Yeah, I mean, one never wants to bring out the contract and say, but hold on a second, this bit of paper that we signed three years ago says... No, of course. <laughs> but, because that that is usually the beginning of the end. Um, but, right. you, but you know that it's there and you know that if you do feel like you're being taken advantage of and your goodwill because you add value and you could say, well, you know, it, an hour of my presence in the meeting is equivalent to a thousand words. And so if you need me at the meeting, it's going to cost you my rate of a thousand words whatever the case might be. Wow, Bruce, I'm, I'm learning something from you. I need to write this down. No, no but it, just, <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, uh, and then when you, when you consider your own career and the freedom that it's given you, because if you're in a day job and you're working the nine to five, which in journalism is never a nine to five, it's a... It's never nine to five, no. Whatever the, the time the story starts to whatever time the third story you've worked on today finishes, those are the hours and that's the, na the nature of the beast. And people who love journalism don't tend to whinge about that, not to their boss anyway. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you freelance, you do lots of copywriting, you've managed to write a book of your own, you've actually right, done, you've yes. actually managed to do an Iron Man, and you've done a couple of, you know, just a bunch of other stuff. Do you feel Oh, like no, no, the, the Iron Man, sorry, that is, is that, that is Shay. Is that Shay? <laughs> I thought that was you. Yes. Oh, no, 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 Iron so Man, impressed. my... I should be talking oh. to Shay. <laughs> no, that was Shay. Producers, get me Shay. She's more interesting. <laughs> uh, so Shay, Shay's got the work-life balance right. How close are you yeah, yeah. getting to Shay's say the level of self-abuse and self-harm? Um, well, I did the the Pirates twenty-one k last week. If that counts, that's I impressive. I mean, it's not an Iron Man. That's Thank impressive. you. Thank you. That's very good. <laughs> but do you feel like it's given you a balance that you didn't have in a job? Definitely, I think so. I think especially, and again, COVID helped oddly to say, but 
the the work from home, the work remotely aspect. I mean, I save two hours a day not driving. I roll out of bed, I roll into my office, um, I have 10 cups of coffee and I just churn out words. And then I go and walk my dogs and have a run and cook chickpeas. And I feel like I have a very good work-life balance. You see, if you had a proper job, you could afford meat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But but do you outsource the admin of your business? Um, Because there's a very strong view, and I agree with this view, that you shouldn't be billing. You shouldn't be chasing the accounts. You shouldn't be doing your own taxes. Anything where you could make a mistake because it's not your forte or it's not something that you're particularly interested in. Getting in the money is interesting, uh, but doing the process and making sure that the billing is for everything that you've done do you outsource that or do you do it yourself? Definitely. Definitely. You don't want to... So so the book has a chapter on how to do your tax, but Shay also recommends getting someone to do it for you. So I have... I use the tax shop Linden. They're fantastic. Um, I don't have any any stress. I just paid my taxes and I feel so proud that I've paid my taxes. You know, every February it comes and I'm just... I did it. I'm on time. I'm compliant. Um because because it it was one of the huge headaches in my early career was trying to figure this out, you know, putting a chunk of your money away and and knowing that you're not going to see it again. <laughs> no, I don't mean it like that. I just mean that it you yeah. know it's not for you anymore. Um, but my accountant is is really really good. She every month she takes my I send her everything she needs and yeah I don't have to worry about it. It's a great relief. I mean, freelancing... As opposed to doing it myself. Freelancing is running your own business. Freelancing is the ultimate adulting, um, and it requires discipline. And again, I I hope and I'm sure that Shay's book is a book about process and a book about systems and a book about make your life easy, read and implement, and then you don't have to think about the boring stuff ever again, and you can do the stuff that you really like doing, because a lot of running a business is quite dull. Yeah, and every chapter has a summary. So if you're lazy to read, you can just read the summary. (laughs) I don't recommend that though, because it is funny and good. And then there's an action list after each chapter with little check marks, which if you're an A type like me, I love lists. So it gives you a to-do list of things to do to help. I love one quote out of it that I have seen. Being busy is not a badge of honor. Your goal is to build a business, not a busyness. Which, yes, I, which yes. is quite sweet, really. I quite like that. Yeah, I like that too. Um, someone else, a family friend who also has his own business, said to me that um, you, you need to spend time at your business, not in your business. Yeah. So spend time working at it and refining your brand and not you know, just being busy all the time. Anna, thank you very much for spending some, t- some time with us this evening. Anna is a freelance writer. She is a book nerd. She had time to read uh, the book that we reviewed this evening, Shay Carsing's book. Uh, it is called Freelance Like a Boss. We are give- It's given a glowing review by Anna Stroud, who is in the life of implementing the lessons out of the book. And she says it has changed her life, saved her life. So if you are in the world of freelancing, contemplating the world of freelancing, which is not for everybody, um, job security is a wonderful thing if you can get that in these days. But there is also the wonder of being able to have more than one client, more than one source of income, multiple ways of extending your person into lots of different places and working the hours that you choose to work at the time. 
Cape Talk. Bruce is on the Money Show. I met uh, tonight's How I Make Money guest on a webinar the other day, and he said something about being the sixth generation in a South African business. And I went, you're what? You're what? The sixth generation of a family business? And I was completely hooked. Most family businesses don't survive more than two or three generations. They don't survive the first generation generally. But if you do manage to build a family business, it gets passed down and then passed down again. You've done incredibly well. But to do that six times... Uh, suggests something quite remarkable. Jonathan Akut is the managing director of KZN-based Akut Real Estate. And you guys are really proud of the heritage, Jonathan. I've been going around your website and being taken into a time warp back to, I think, the 1850s. You are the oldest estate agents in South Africa. I think you prefer the term most established because oldest sounds out of fashion and sounds a bit um, a bit decrepit. But what, what kicked it all off? Who was the Akut who had the wisdom to set up a property business in KZN in the days of the Oxwagons. Evening, Bruce, and evening to the listeners. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm the sixth generation estate agent to run the family business, uh, which was established correctly, as you were saying, in 1851, just a little over 170 years ago, by my great-great-great-grandfather. Um, his name was Robert Akert, and he was, in fact, one of six Akert family members that uh, came down from the United Kingdom in those days to explore what South Africa has to offer. What was his motivation? I mean, what did he see in KZN in 1854 that prompted him to think, that, hold on a second, this, uh, you know, the, the, the transfer of property requires agency? Well, actually, they arrived in, you know, so in 1850 and he bought an existing auctioneering business um, in 1851. Ah, okay. And that uh, business, and he was is quite famously known for the first auction of sugar out of Port Natal. It was the first locally manufactured sugar out of Port Natal. And as auctioneers in those days, they were entitled to obviously auction a lot of different things, including property, of course. Um, I think at the time what they were doing is, is um, jumping on ships and, and sailing around the world seeking other opportunities um, and, and South Africa was their destination of choice. Yeah, and clearly made, made a go of it. I mean, did he formalize then, did he move out of auctioneering and then formalize the creation of, of what would it have been called? Would it have been called an estate agency in those days? What, would, what was the nature of business that he engaged in in 1854 when he saw the property opportunity? Well, I think when, when his sons first joined the business, um, which was soon after, uh, the, the name that I have, and it's, it's depicted on a lovely um, piece of artwork um, of, of that first auction. You can see in the background, um, uh, R. Akert and Sons. Um, so the name over the years obviously has taken um, a few different forms, uh, Robert Akert and Sons, uh, and then Akerts, and obviously what we call ourselves now Akerts Real Estate. And, and I just think that, that property in general was just a natural progression that we, we, we took, took to. Um, being a very proud sort of property family in Durban. Uh, another piece of history is my, my great-grandfather's brother, Ernest Akert, was actually the mayor of Durban uh, in the early 1900s. So we have a lot of history uh, in and around the, the greater Durban area. Uh, the trouble with family businesses is each generation delivers more 
uh, more family members and that can often kill a family business because it dilutes it to a point where uh, the family interest you know is is now across a hundred you know, uh, descendants of the originator of the business. How, how have you, over the generations, managed to to navigate that? I, I do think that there was always a natural progression for for the the oldest son to to take over the business, and we've had uh, a, a number of Akits, um sitting on boards of directors. You know, over 170 years, the, the company's grown, the company's shrunk, depending on whatever uh, economic environment we were facing at the time. Um, if you think about things like world wars we've been through, Spanish flu, um, and more recently, um, you know, other economic uh, dips, uh, COVID being my my biggest um, challenge that I've had to overcome. Um, but, but I just think, you know, growing up, I, I always knew that it was something that, that I wanted to do. Um, and and the seventh generation, by the way, Bruce is my son Joshua, and so hopefully one day he will follow in the footsteps. What if he doesn't want to? Because I mean that's one of the great problems, isn't it? I mean if your name is Brosen or Gore, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to be grilling chicken or selling insurance. Um, what makes you think that uh, he Joshua will want to get into the property business, or has he been has he been schooled? Um, a bit like the royal family, <laughs> you, you will be the next king. Um, is, uh, is, is it a fait accompli? Uh, I, I think that my my father, who I also worked with, and my my wife and stepmom, by the way. But um, you know, my father famously said um, to my wife, who said, "Well, what if he wants to become a doctor?" My dad said, "Well, then he's going to be the first doctor." That, that runs uh, an Akat real estate business. Um, <laughs> hey, it, worked for, it worked for the Goldings. I mean, yeah. And it worked for Andrew. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, I can honestly say, uh, I mean, I, I've got photos of, of show houses that, that Joshua and I have sat together um, at and, um, you know, being being involved in computers and, and that, which a 12-year-old would be, um, you know, he, he you, sort of spends a lot of time constructing worlds and that. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's going to be the the route that he will take one day. It's, it's in the DNA and there's no blimmin' choice. It really is. Um, so when, when you look at uh, the evolution of this business, I was interested also to see that you've only got 20 franchises across the country. Now, you say the business has expanded and flexed and contracted in tough times and expanded in good times. Uh, have you deliberately chosen to keep it a fairly tight-knit group? Bruce, you know, every every 10 years, as you're aware, um, comes with certain challenges. And I think the, the pre-2008-2009 crash – uh, we are up to 125 franchises. If oh I my word! Correctly. Okay, wow. Okay. So, and and we were confident, confidently, we can say that we we're one of the ten top real estate companies in the country. Um, I I, I love the ability as as uh, being a 100% acre-owned company without any international um, influence that we are able to to grow and shrink and investigate different aspects of real estate. Uh, for example, the property management and body corporate division, which I started back in 2016, um, we, we have that ability to explore new opportunities. I've also been to um, to Mauritius, as an example, and explored that for South African buyers. So I have that ability, and 
yes, I, I, I like the um, I like the flu- being fluid like that. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that it had actually been that big, but I suppose that was during an era where everybody who could afford a signboard was, you know, leaving a mainstream agency and creating their own agency because in the booms of property, it's an incredibly attractive thing to not have to give away half your commission uh, to a franchise. You, you know, you get to keep the commission and that gives you a lot more flexibility as an agent and lots of very smart agents have created very successful offshoots of their own over time. It, it is a wonderful industry to be in. We are highly regulated, of course. Um, and I think even, well, I believe even in the post 2009, um, uh, sort of phase of our, our business, you know, we, we had to adapt to a new market. And you're, you're, you also know that we have the new property practitioners regulatory authority and there are very stringent, um, rules that we need to, to comply with as a company. Um, almost, uh, I would say too, too strict preventing new entrants into the market. Um, and, and I say that, um, it was supposed uh, you know, to open up the market, wasn't it? I mean, it was supposed to bring in particularly black entrants into the market and make it uh, a, a more seamless transition without the onerous time periods to study and all sorts of other stuff. There was a, almost a fast track created. And you say that it's actually made it more difficult. It's, it's, more difficult because of, of, of the, the, the required compliance. And as a franchise company, you know, we have a dedicated team that uh, is constantly in contact with the property practitioners authority. And, you know, their job is to ensure that our estate agents or property practitioners, as they're known, um, are, are compliant with the regulations. I can understand for someone wanting to begin a real estate company um, that that could be a hurdle that they'd have to overcome. Um, and, and therefore, the, the benefit of being part of a, a franchise company um, is, is evident. Uh, property is a tough game. I mean, 20 years ago, prices were low and commissions were high. Now, prices are high and commissions are low. And uh, I guess uh, you know, there, it was a time not so long ago where commissions on uh, on properties were 7% and nobody would blink and that was the going rate. And now it's considerably more negotiable. But that adds a level of complexity, doesn't it, to the process of ensuring the agent gets commission, that the agency gets its cut and that all of the taxes are paid ultimately. You know, Bruce, when, when you're 173 years old, um, like we are, um, I can confidently say that our business is built on relationships and it's built on trust. And when you have that as, as a foundation for a, a business transaction, such as a real estate sale, uh, you are in a position to, to command a fee that is, is worthy of your services. Um, you know, when it comes to pricing as, um, an example, properties will only ever sell for the price that a purchaser is willing to pay in, in a normal market. So um, you, you, you may find that properties are overpriced or the majority of properties may be overpriced on the market. But at some point, hopefully, the, either the market catches up or those, those sellers realize that to, to, if they're serious about selling, they need to bring the pricing back in line with with what the market is dictating. Um, But especially being uh, heavily or closely watched by the banks, the banks would not let us obviously sell property for a price that's above what they believe to be a fair market value.
And SARS won't allow you to sell one for less because they uh, we want to collect their, <laughs> their their duties, of course, on on property transfers. So how do you make money? I mean, you make it you, you share in the commission of the agencies that are part of your network. But then the the bits and that's the bit of the business that you started because every generation will bring new ideas into it, and that's property management because so many people in South Africa nowadays live in sectional title, they live in homeowners associations, live in complexes, and these. These places are fraught with complexity and lots of regulation and laws and bodies, corporate and trustees and all sorts of stuff that need, I think, in my experience anyway, to be guided and themselves to be managed and be told what they can and can't do. You know, it's, it's so true. And I, I think we're fortunate that property management, as an example, is something that we've done um, quite successfully over the years. And, and the recent, let's say, re-entry into property management was a strategic move by ourselves um, to complete uh, the ecosystem of being able to manage properties as well as do the rental management and the sales. So we've created our own um, uh, ecosystems that, that each where each point feeds the other. Um, I, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, would I have gone uh, I, would you go into property management? I would have said, Bruce, you're absolutely crazy um, and and you need to, to be admitted. But <laughs> in the past eight years, um, I, I've actually really found my niche in, in real estate, um, being a sectional title specialist and, and working with body corporates and, and trustees. I just find that it's, you know, when you, when you have these conversations around budgets and, and uh how to spend your money wisely, you, you, you again build that trust relationship which then translates into uh, further transactions such as rental management and, and property sales as well. So what does your day look like? I mean, we, we like to talk about, uh, you know, career choices and how people can make good career choices and stuff. Poor Joshua doesn't ever have a choice. Um, but uh, what does your day look like in terms of um, the, 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 the oversight of an entire property business, which, you know, for which you are ultimately have fiduciary responsibility? Bruce, my, my, Journey began uh, quite a few years ago um, when I realized that to be successful, I had to be an entrepreneur. And to do that, I had to, to, to study entrepreneurship. And so I consider myself a scholar of entrepreneurship. And uh, one of the first books I ever read, which you'll know, is Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity and How He Starts the Virgin Brand. Uh, and that sort of starts my, my understanding of what it means to, to be an entrepreneur. And typically, my Definition would have been an entrepreneur as a business owner. Um, these days, that definition has, has changed somewhat. Uh, and I would define it as being an individual who finds uh, a, a, another individual that has a problem and they come up with a solution to that problem. You know, in the case of, of property sales, anyone is entitled and able to sell their own home, whether they do it for the highest price in the shortest possible space of time. You know, with the least effort, that's, that leaves a, a big question mark for me. So that's the problem we're solving there. Um, the other part, and, and, and being an entrepreneur, I know that, that I, I can't reach my, my goals um, without good, solid teams, reliable teams. So I can honestly say that our success has been built on the shoulders of reliable uh, team members, 
our, our admin staff, our agents, and, and our head office staff as well. Uh, and, it, yeah, absolutely critical. I mean, are you a proponent of the higher, smarter than yourself or higher, more capable than yourself? Um, I, I, I think you, I know you love a good quote, so let me use one. Um, Albert Einstein said that if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will go through <laughs> life thinking. There was something about a fish and a bicycle or something along those lines, but I, some, I think the sentence is correct. Those lines. So, you know, the, the point is, is that we all possess um, different different skills and we're wired in different ways. You know, and I, I may be great at certain things such as strategy and business growth, um, but my, I'm, I'm ably assisted by my, my lovely wife who, who looks after the finances of the business and makes sure that all the bills are paid. So, you know, having people to rely on allows me to focus on the things that I'm good at and then at the same time they get to, to, to work on the things that they really enjoy doing on a daily basis. Through the generations, has it also has it been a sort of a spousal enterprise, or are you the first generation? I mean, you said your stepmom's involved, um, you know. But it, when did women sort of get involved in the business? If this was a business that was passed down from father to son, I think if I was sitting with you, I'd see a big can opener on your desk there with you, Bruce. Um, <laughs> I, I think women have been involved in real estate for many, many years. My grandfather. Was was known um, obviously for 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 saying uh, his secretary was a lady by the name of of Baba, and he would get her to to write. Um, you know, he would dictate, and she would write down um, in in that fancy shorthand writing. Um, I do think that you know, with the involvement of my stepmom being the finan- previous financial director, and my wife, um, that we've really embraced that the the family business um, aspects. Uh, However, I mean, working with family, and, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, you do need to have your own little piece of real estate where you respect the, the roles and responsibilities of each of the family members. Yeah. Um, you know, otherwise you can easily butt heads. No, absolutely. A very few businesses make it past one generation, never mind two, never mind three, never mind making it to six and now to seven. What, is, what has been the secret? Has there, to your mind, in terms of actually a multi-generational business surviving in one of the more tempestuous business environments in the world, which is South Africa, and certainly a very volatile and complicated and uncertain environment, has there been a, a consistency through the generations? Bruce, you know, I, I, I've, I, I've, I've come up with a, a combination of two words, and I've made one which I think is, is the best description of, of what it takes to be successful from generation to ge- generation, uh, and that's resilienceity, uh, the combination of resilience and tenacity. <laughs> okay. You know, um, it's, it, I guess it's, it's too easy to... to to sit back and and rest on the on the successes of the previous generation. So looking back, I think each generation's you know we're very fortunate to to have uh, started off um, with the success of the previous, but then it is definitely our responsibility to take that to the next level, which I think we're doing. Yeah, I mean you owe it to future generations to grow. 
um, the, the the enterprise, isn't it? Because ultimately, I mean, you know, each generation is going to have added responsibilities, and is particularly if there's a growth ambition to go back to us, you know, in the next property bull market, of which there will be one someday. Um, you know, to get back to the 125 franchises, go beyond it, and 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 you know, be a next generation of bold expanders on of the business. Yeah, I think franchising, anyone who is involved in franchising knows the, the the challenges that come with franchising, especially when you have a brand that's attached to your, your name. Uh, it becomes a very personal thing. Um, you know, uh, uh, Colonel Sanders maybe wouldn't understand that. But, you know, I think franchising had a boom over the over the, the, the early 2000s. Um, but I think in, in the 2010s, it's we've taken a bit of a beating. However, I, I do see a turnaround. Um, and I see, again, more and more people turning to franchise companies with proven track records and systems uh, that they don't have to reinvent the wheel, that they can just hop on and, and, and go for a ride. So, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it's, it's uh, swings and roundabouts. And, and I think we're entering the next, the next turn in real estate. We certainly hope so. Jonathan Akert, thank you for sharing the tale with us this evening. Managing Director at Akert's Real Estate, the sixth generation, the seventh being teed up to take over already at the age of 12. Yeah, running family businesses, incredibly complicated, of course, particularly in something as volatile as property in a volatile South African environment.